Miles, if you were turned into a goat, what would you do? Probably uh, eat a, eat a can and uh, and like jump on something. <laughs> I, yeah, I would get on a really tall like hill or something yeah. and just stand there for like three hours. I would headbutt a unicorn and die. <laughs> headbutt a unicorn? Yeah. Oh, because it happened yeah. in the movie. That is yeah. the best shot of any movie I've ever seen <laughs> in my entire life. And we will get into that today. Before we get into the episode today, we have a few listener emails and comments to respond to. Oh my god. We've gathered them up and we've Holy got shit. We actually have stuff to talk about. <laughs> we do. Uh, yeah. How much of it is like, hey, you guys fucked up? Um okay, one is and, and that goes to me, which we had a listener just kind of point out that when I covered the Goonies episode, I was talking about how Sean Astin and Josh Brolin came from acting families. And I did not mention that Martha Plimpton, who plays one of those, oh, I can't remember the character's name at this point, the, the two girls who accompany like the younger right. kids, Martha Plimpton comes from an acting family as well. So her father is Keith Carradine, Carradine, roast me in the comments, um, who was in Robert Altman's Nashville, and he was in a series of well-known shows. And then his father, John Carradine, is another famous actor who played Dracula several times in the 1940s. So, forgot to mention that, but uh, there's a little comment for you. Lie of a mission. How know. dare you? I know. Next up, we have a question specifically for Stefan, who mm. took the lead for the Transformers episode. Oh, yeah. um, this one comes from Brenly. Okay. Shout out, Brenly. Shout out, Brenly. And she says, hello, I have a question for you about Transformers. I'm well aware I could look this up for myself, but since y'all made me watch this movie, I'm making you do it. When I watched it, I looked up how old Megan Fox was when the movie was released in 2007. She was 21. But Mariah mentions her being 18. How long was post-production and how much time was spent rendering the Transformers? Hmm. Okay. I feel like there's two things going on there. First answer. Uh, I don't know exactly how long post-production was. I know the movie finished filming in October of 2006 and was released in July so at the least, I think there's eight months between those two times. So I would assume somewhere around there, they probably spent that time in post-production. As for the age thing, I don't, I don't really. Maybe she was 18 when she was cast she was or 18, something. Yeah, I, I would, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe when they were doing casting and it just took that long. I, I don't know. Maybe I did math wrong. I'm not sure. All I know is there's a quote of Michael Bay saying, I want to get the hottest 18-year-old out there, so. Speaking of Transformers, uh, the new Transformers movie come out has Unicron in it, and uh, I've been waiting 15 years for that. So. He has not shut up about Unicron, <laughs> which, Unicron. by the way, I stand by. This is the stupidest name for a Transformer. I it's like Unicorn, you. but just two-letter switched. Unicron, because he's got... he's Okay, Unicron is a planet that eats other planets. He's, oh. he's a planet-sized Transformer. And he I, has he has giant two horns that he uses to latch onto the planet, and he just like consumes it. I remember because I saw a commercial, and some dude's like, "Well, how big can it be?" And another one was like, "Well, it eats planets, so bigger than a planet." Yeah, it's kind of a bad line. But uh, when I was you know fifteen, and I was waiting for the second Transformers movie and the third Transformers movie, and so on, I just so badly wanted them to do Unicron, and he wasn't there. But now he's finally, finally here, and I'm happy about it. 
Who do you think would win in a fight, Unicron or uh, Mogo? Who's Mogo? Mogo. Oh, Mogo. He is a planet that was given a Green Lantern ring. He's a whole ass yeah, I'm planet. Not, uh, a with... lame nerd. Who okay, reads well... comic books. I like big robots. All right. The answer is Unicron because he can tra- he can transform. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we have one last email to discuss. Um, and it says, I need your guys' opinion on a movie debate. Ideally, you would do Jurassic Park and then wait until discussing your opinions to read the question I am wait, attaching. Wait, who's, who's this by? This is also from Brenly. Okay. Shout out to Brenly again. Shout out to Brenly again. Shout out to Brenly. Content. Uh, wait until discussing your opinions to read the question I am attaching to this email. But if y'all aren't covering it for a long ass time, feel free to answer whenever. My brother Wesley and I anticipate your responses. Um, so the question is, Okay. It was a, it was attached as like a word doc, so I didn't open it until right now. Okay. Um, in the critically acclaimed dra- uh, film Jurassic <laughs> Park, the group comes across a giant pile of dinosaur shit. Mm-hmm. Is that shit from one dinosaur, or is it a communal dinosaur shit pile? It's one dinosaur. It's gotta be one just dinosaur. Just for added info, I think it's just one. Wesley thinks it's multiple. It's gotta be what, just... What, what animal? What, what animal species does a communal poop in the yeah. same pile? <laughs> what animal does that? Besides maybe humans, but even then that would be weird. <laughs> but we're capable of it. No. Who, what, what human has a communal poop pile? Like, okay, wait, hold on. I do want to say. There's outhouses. Hold but- on, hold on. I do want to say in the scene, I think there's, there's the one pile they like dig into. Uh-huh. I want to say maybe there's more piles around it. Okay, well. So if you're talking about the giant pile that they dig into, I think that's one dinosaur. But if there is in my memory, like I think it is, multiple piles, then yeah, they probably all kind of pooped in the same area. But <laughs> I don't was... think they all pooped on top of the same poop. Like yeah, they're not pile. stacking their. Poops. They're not stacking. They're not Jenga tower stacking the poop. Brenly, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I'm glad we and didn't Wesley. wait till we Wesley, the episode to talk about it. You madman! You absolute <laughs> fool! Why? Why would they all poop in one spot? Do you tell me there's a line to get to the poop spot? Yeah, yeah they gotta wait. <laughs> they gotta line up. Anyway, so those are our listener comments and emails for today. If you guys want to send any in, any questions, uh, hypothetical questions, kind of like that Jurassic Park one was, send them our way. I'll be real with you. Yeah. Up until now, I thought the email was a farce. N- no, it <laughs> exists. <laughs> We just haven't talked there, about it. I did it. get that one email that was like, oh, could Stefan please make that sound that I really love? You know, he makes that really cool sound with his noise. And I just, can you really do it again? What, so, what noise um, is it? Do it. Yeah, well, I, I'll oblige our audience member and do the noise. <clears throat> right. I want you to know that. Do I think she'll could keep that in? No. If that gets buried for eternity and it's never heard again, that was for me. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for those comments. But moving on to our now more regular uh, segment. What have you guys seen recently? I watched uh, Kung Fu Panda 3. Oh. Um, for first time or? First time. Okay. I watched, I have seen the first one, I think like twice. And then I saw the first. Second one when it came out, and now I was just like, well, I might as well watch the third. But I liked it. It's because the first one was like, haha, fat panda do kung fu. And the second one was like, haha, I killed your family, and now you have to live with that trauma, but you have found inner peace. 
and I haven't. So what's that about? And then the third one is like, ha fat panda do fat panda kung fu again. <laughs> they just announced they're making a fourth one. They're making a fourth one. And it's uh, the new, I, you know what? I don't know how I know this. Um, the new villain has the ability to bring back old villains from Poe's past. What? I'll hmm. leave that for you to digest. Oh, I was thinking about it because the villain in this one is it going to bring back his trauma as, a, as so. a sentient being? PTSD panda. Ooh, no. Well, the the villain Shrek in this one crossover would absolutely demolish the other two villains, hands down. Fuck them up. And so I, I wonder if, ooh, I wonder if there's going to be villain in fighting. Anyway, it was a good movie. Mm. Um, not as good as the first or second one, but. Jumping on the No Way Home time. train. Still a fun time. Put it on in the background while you're painting miniatures or something like that. That's what I did. Nice. Shout out to miniatures. Go miniatures. Mariah, Stefan. Woo. That was my shout out. Stefan, what have you seen? Um, oh, shoot. I realized I didn't really pick one, so I'll just talk about this. Um. I watched an animated miniseries, Miles, you know about this one, called Primal. Oh, um, Primal. Yes, I watched made Primal. Made by, I can't remember his name. Gandhi Tartakovsky. Yeah, he, he made not only Samurai Jack, yeah. but the original Star Wars, the Clone Wars mm-hmm. animated series. Yes, I think he also worked uh, Dexter's Lab. Oh, did he? And Yeah, and also Powerpuff Girls. I wouldn't um, be surprised. Well, he's a very... Very prolific yeah. animator and animation director. It has very distinct style, and you can kind of just tell by like the rhythm of the way he does things. But uh, it was a very good series. I really enjoyed it. Um, the whole bit is it's like a caveman and a, this dinosaur bond through um, shared trauma of losing their family, and they just kind of go off and do wacky adventures. Um, but just very superb animation, I really like. And uh, one of the things I think is fun about it is it's completely just like nonverbal communication. And they're able to get some like really poignant moments out of that where it's like you as the viewer have information about like characters, you know? You know, like, mm-hmm. oh, this character feels this thing and this character feels this thing. And you'll see a character maybe having a reaction to something that's happening and the character doesn't know what the other one's going through. But they can tell by like their expression and their body language that like something's happening. And I really like these moments where they're just sort of like looking at one another and they're realizing like something's happening with the other one, but they can't like communicate anything about it. So they just kind of like sit in that moment. Very good. They really make use of the format. Well, I know because I, I know this fact about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is all nonverbal. And he mm-hmm. made this show to begin with. Because he was getting a lot of people telling him that their favorite parts of Samurai Jack were the nonverbal parts mm-hmm. where like no one's talking. So he's like, well, if, what if I just made a whole show about that? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it does it extremely well. I also know, too, like with Samurai Jack and with this this show in particular, it kind of shines through. You, I'm um, very inspired by like Eastern cinema mm-hmm. and you can see a lot of Kurosawa. Oh really? Stuff. And just so like, I haven't actually seen a lot Primal of the yet. the shots, the pans. There's a lot of bits of people like walking out of fog, which Kurosawa loved to do. Um, so a lot of that, like sort of, as well as like the editing, is very mm. sort of it's very sort of Russian montage editing. And he is Russian, so it makes sense that his inspirations really? are are that its name's Gendy Tartakovsky. I guess so. Um, but it makes sense that his inspirations are over on that side of the globe. Anyways, very good. I recommend it. It's a bit violent though, so if you don't like that, then don't watch. Yeah. Ryan, what have you 
taken in? What have you absorbed into your watched. brain? What has turned into electrical impulses? Um, well, Stefan and I watched this movie that felt like it took years off of my life, and it was called Welcome to Mooseport. Oh. Where do I begin? So Gene Hackman, who I'm getting okay. a blank look from Miles. Miles what a hack. He was in extremely famous movies. A, like a, a, Extremely proclaimed actor. Yes. Like The Conversation, The like, French Connection. Didn't see, it, didn't see it. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. You, well, I think you did watch The Conversation because it was part of our film class. Yeah. Is the one where he's recording sound. Oh. That movie. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Okay, hold on. I got to look it up. Which is a good movie. Watch The Gene. Conversation. As Miles looks him up, I will continue. So this is the last film that Gene Hackman ever did because it was so bad it made him quit acting. Mm-hmm. And it's him and Ray Romano. Ray, me, and, Ray uh, Romano. And Gene Hackman plays this kind of skeezy U.S. president who, you know, after he serves his two terms, he moves to a town called Mooseport, and then he kind of gets roped into running for mayor. But then Ray Romano, this local handyman, also wants to run for mayor. And then they're just playing dirty and like fighting over the same woman and just being really gross about it. The, and, whole, um, the whole dynamics and the relationships are weird. It, it didn't work. It's a bad movie, but not in a good way. Yeah, like it wasn't fun, bad. No. It was just bad, bad. And I, I feel really bad because I see the potential of what could have been. Uh, and it it, it no, it, it was bad. Damn, it I bad? Mean, it bad. I, 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 we should ask our friend here what he thinks about it. <clears throat> Ray? Hey. It's me, Ray Romano. Ray Romano, uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So what, do you, what did you think of? Uh, have you the, seen Ice Age? Yeah. You should watch Ice Age. Oh, I love Ice Age. Yeah. I hate the baby in Ice Age, though. I would kill that baby. Oh, uh, well, I, I, I got to go. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, Ray. All right. Um, yeah. Well, thanks to... Can we get some applause in the studio? I'm sorry. I thought everyone hated the baby. You, why would you say that? I thought everyone... No, I wrote on the paper, don't bring up the baby. Don't bring oh, up the baby. God, you brought fuck. up the baby. I'm sorry. I have never going to get him back. Oh, shit. Oh, God. I fucked it, guys. I'm sorry. <sighs> okay, we'll try and get... Um, Sid the Sloth on next time. Yeah. They do this every year. Oh, he's already here. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Thank you for coming on. So what did you think oh, of the baby? Well, we oh. got, wait, you know who else we got? Hey, Helen Parr from The Incredibles. <laughs> Could you come out? I don't think so. Oh, it's, okay. She's not feeling it right <laughs> now. Okay. She's got a busy schedule. Um, yeah. We're moving on from these well, bizarre, horrible quick, impressions. Real quick. I want to talk <laughs> yeah. about Gene Hackman. Yeah. yeah. Why did you guys not tell me that he was... Lex Luthor in the Superman movie. Oh, because I haven't seen those ones. Well, you're watching the wrong Gene Hackman video movies. Today we're going to be talking about Stardust, the 2007 film directed by Matthew Vaughn, co-written by Matthew Vaughn and Jane Goldman. It stars Charlie Cox, Claire Danes, Robert De Niro, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Mark Strong, among others. And I would like a summary from you two boys. But before we start, I need to, I want to get in character for this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna go do a line of Stardust in the bathroom real quick, <laughs> so I can That's be, good. so I can get in the headspace of this movie. So, anyways, while Miles is in the bathroom, I'll go ahead and start uh, giving you guys a good summary of this movie. If okay. you haven't seen it, or if you need a little <clears throat> refresher. <clears throat> Once upon a time, there was a boy who snuck past a decrepit man and through a magical wall into a magical land called Fairy, and uh, 
that Wallace stood there for hundreds of years. And in that magical world, he had a one-night stand with a slave who uh, was also a princess. And nine months later or so, a baby is delivered to the non-magical world, to that boy. And that baby grows up, and 20 years later, he's just a grown bastard child. Uh, years later, our baby is simping very hard for a lady in his Does town. Does this baby have a name? Are you going to get to that? Um, yeah, this baby has the name Tristan. I don't okay. know what his last name is. Thorn. Tristan Thorn. And he's simping really hard for this lady. For those of you older listeners, simping just means like you're... You would do anything for... You, you do anything for a girl. You're just you're throwing yourself down on the road so she can step over you to avoid a puddle. You, you're simping. And uh, he's involved in this love triangle with Henry Cavill, uh, which is impossible to win. So to get the girl, he goes to get a falling star for her. So he crosses the wall and um, finds the star, which is a woman, actually. And meanwhile, there is two other groups of people trying to also get the star. There is a bunch of brothers who are trying to get the star so they can succeed one another as king because their father has died. And then there's also a couple of witches who are trying to get the star for eternal youth. And thus, our story and epic journey begins along the journey. There's uh, the old slaver. The old slaver woman who has the slave mom is still alive. And uh, she gets cursed by a witch so she can't see the star or perceive it in any way. That's just a side tangent thing to know. Uh, the witch tries to uh, set up an inn to trap the star woman at coincidentally one of the brothers shows up and then the whole smorgasbord of stuff happens there's a goat there's a man there's a man woman goat thing people die uh, our heroes escape and uh they're in the sky on a cloud when a giant ship flying in the sky miles are you are you done i'm back guys oh okay here we go so where did you leave off on uh, ship, uh, cloud, off? cloud in the sky. You, cloud in the sky. Okay. I picked the dip. So they're in the cloud in the sky. And they go and uh, they're talking to this guy, and he's like, "Oh, you know what? I'm actually not that bad of a guy." And so they're like, "Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, thank you." And then they go and they meet Ricky Gervais, who is uh, how do you? Uh, huh? He knows Ricky Gervais. <laughs> you know Ricky Gervais, but you don't mention that the captain of the ship is Robert De Niro. Who's Robert De Niro? I'm I pick, kidding. I At this the, point, I know who Robert De Niro is. I picked a bad day point. to do heroin. <laughs> anyway, so they meet Ricky Gervais, and Ricky Gervais ends up dying to one of the brothers. Although, I would like to mention, one of the brothers has green blood, which I think is a little weird. Blue. Blue. Oh, blue blood. Because of royalty. Blue blood. But why his flesh pink then? <laughs> uh, it's magic, dude. Hmm? A, a magic star fell blood. out of the sky, and it's a lady. Anyway, they get off the ship, and this is when Tristran, because there's an R in it, by the way. So yeah. it's Tristran. Yeah. Anyway, he realizes that he loves Yvaine, uh, because she's a shooting star and not some other lady. And then they go and they he goes, Hey, you know what? I'm actually gonna go and tell this bitch to fuck off because she needs to fuck off. And then so he goes and he goes, Hey, bitch, fuck off. The girl he promised the shooting star for. Yeah. Miles, I'm gonna hand you some Narcan. I suggest you take it. Nope. <laughs> okay. And then she's like, all right, well, fuck you, I guess. I'll date this guy. Uh, and then he goes back and he's like, oh, fuck. She, the lady, the, Yvaine, the girl I want to be with, she can't go and come into this world or else she'll turn into stardust because apparently she just can't come into this world. If, if you're magic, you can only stay in the magic part of the world. There you go. So she can't cross the wall into the normal 
English she's magic. World. Yes. So anyway, she gets taken by the witch lady, and then the uh, Tristan and the brother they get together and they <laughs> they go to fight the witches, and the brother kills two of the witches. Where do we fight the witches? <laughs> Where do we goodies on the witches? And then. The coolest special effect, in my opinion, happens where he drowns and dies. But he drowns in the air because a doll went into the this water. This is Septimus, by the way. You didn't interrupt him this much. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a reason. Anyway, he ends up um, freeing... Yvain, well, I guess the witch lady frees Yvain, and you're like, oh, she learned her lesson. Psych! She's evil. Uh, but then she dies. Somehow. Yvain shines bright like a diamond. Right. Because that's what stars do best, and, and she nukes. explodes. <laughs> she nukes that nukes bitch. That witch. <laughs> so uh, she gets fucking nuked and dies, and then he picks up the stone, and it turns red. Because he is of the bloodline. Because his mom was the princess his that was missing. So right. he Slave. is technically the last male heir of the Stormhold line. So he becomes king. He becomes king. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he lives for a human amount of time or a long time? Human amount of time. Human amount of time. Uh, and then he turns into a star with his wife. And their stars happily ever after. Uh-huh. Oh, she's the North Star, by the way. Is she? Yeah, because he at one point he looks up. And he's so, like, we got to follow the... And he's like, oh, it's fucking not there. And she's I'm, like, yeah. I'll be honest, I skipped over that. I didn't, I I didn't, didn't notice that. Yeah. I don't remember that Damn, at all. Nice catch. Yeah. Well, thank you for that summary. But before it was a movie, it was a book. It was a book from 1999 written by a man named Neil Gaiman, who you might know from his writing. Uh, he wrote Coraline. Wait, um, really? Mm-hmm. Nice. American Gods, Good Omens, and The Graveyard Book. And before Stardust was a conventional book, it was actually a four-issue series of comics that were released once a month, and then they were put out in complete like comic form, and the whole title was Stardust, and then in parentheses, being a romance within the realm of fairy. So Gaiman originally had this idea of an American writer who discovers this fairy world behind a wall in England as he was like on a road trip with his wife, and so it was going to originally just be called Wall. Then he was at a party a little bit later and he saw a shooting star and he just thought of like the entire plot to Stardust. So he was with this illustrator, Charles Vess, at the party and he pulls him outside and he says, here's my idea. And they created the comics together. And after that, because Gaiman still owned the rights after the comics were produced, he released the 1999 novel that contains no illustrations but is the same story. Now, the film is pretty faithful to the book, with a lot of the dialogue just coming straight from the book itself, but there are some significant differences that I would like to get into, and this is one of the few instances where I do believe that the film is better than the book. Ah. <gasps> and so, after hearing the differences, I would like to get your, your guys' opinion. I just kind of have, like, a list of some of the changes, and you can tell me if you think they're good or not. Okay. So, first off, in the book, Tristan's name is not Tristan, it's Tristran. Which I'm glad they changed because that's really hard to say. It just Already roll off the two. tongue. Yeah. Um, well, plus two for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And for the sake of not constantly doing tongue twisters, I'm just going to simply refer to him as Tristan. Um, so in the book, it's not just him and his father, like it is in the film. He does have a mother that's not his biological mother, and he has a sister. And the book starts with his father, Dunstan, having an affair with Una, and then he just gets married to a different woman. And then as they're married, Tristan just appears on their doorstep. Uh, plus two for the movie we don't like cheating um it would have been cheating 
because it was a relationship he had before. Yeah. But it would have been really hard to explain, like, oh, honey, this is... Um... Well, that would mean then that he got remarried within, like, nine months of that event happening. Yeah. Uh, in general, there's a lot more magic in the book. There's um, there's all different kinds of creatures that... Uh, like, they specifically mention, like, little people who live in bushes and trees that talk and... They're... Oh, my... my... Oh, o- Oregon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are people who are cursed by witches who get turned into animals like squir- squirrels, birds, owls, and trees. Like, they ha- constantly refer to these people in the book. It's like the lobster. And because Una comes from fairy or like Stormhold, um, she's written as having purple eyes and cat ears at the beginning. Oh. Excuse me. That's, You're telling that's me. That's a plus two for the book. That's a plus fucking ten for the book. You're telling me they got cat girls? You're telling me they got cat girls? <laughs> Where the fuck do I find this wall? How do I get there? Well, you f- the first trial you have to suffer is going to England. I ain't going. No cat girls worth going to England for. <laughs> um, and because Tristan is her son, he's also kind of like half magical. And so one of the things is that he just knows the direction of everything in fairy someone will be like do you know where the star is and he can just point and be like it's over there and we're 100 miles away oh. like he just knows and he doesn't know how he knows he just knows but when he's in wall in the normal world he can't do it to save his life that um, is that's brought up in the movie it, it is also hinted uh from septimus that his family has a good sense of direction so that's kind of like the first indication um aside from una being his mom that he's like royalty mm. uh there's this is a whole character that they did not include, and he's referred to solely as a, a little hairy man. And he actually helps Tristan in the first part of his journey into the woods. Um, it helps him out. He's the one who gives him the battle on candle, not his father. And then there's the description of the of what traveling by Babylon candle is like. A little hairy man just doesn't come off the tongue very well. Well, so actually, I have a fun hey, story oh. about this one. They were gonna have the small hairy man. Um, but my uncle was busy. <laughs> I was gonna do an uncle bit. Oh, oh my I god! I beat you do it. I beat you do it. You <laughs> I was gonna be like, oh my uncle. Um, well, in the movie, they kind of just like transport when they use the Babylon candle. But in the book, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from it. This is how they describe using the uh, candle. With Tristan's next step, he was standing beside a lake, and the candlelight shone brightly on the water, and then he was walking through the mountains, through the lonely crags, where the candlelight was reflected in the eyes of the creatures of the high snows, and then he was walking through the clouds, which, while not entirely substantial, still supported his weight and comfort, and then, holding tightly to his candle, he was underground, and the candlelight glinted back at him from the wet cave walls. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, I don't have to keep. So it's reading. like with each step, he's but in it's kind of like each step. He's he just like kind of goes further and further. It's not as sudden as it is in the yeah, movie. Yeah. So could you imagine if you just like, <laughs> I don't know, sitting like you're sitting on the side of the road, you're trying to hitchhike, get a ride, and all of a sudden for like a moment, a man just appears in existence <laughs> for one step, and then he's gone. Um, that's cool though. I like that. Yeah. They, and they, I like visual. I wish they did that in the movie because visually that sounds really fun. Mm-hmm, yeah. It would just be like match cuts. like Yeah, of him walking everywhere. Yeah. I agree. So in the film, Tertius dies in the castle by being poisoned by Septimus, kind of like before the journey really starts. Yes. Um, however, in the book, all three brothers make it out and Tertius, Septimus, and Primus. Is it Primus? Primus. Primus. Mm, Primus. I don't know if it matters that much, but yeah. Um, Primus like Optimus Prime. Yeah. yeah. Primus all go to the inn together and that's where Septimus poisons Tertius. So he poisons him there, like a little bit later. Mm. 
and then so the two brothers die in the inn at two different inns oh yeah so then after tertius dies primus actually outsparts septimus by making it look like he's boarding a ship because he's got like a lead of where the star is and he like oh he was seen locking himself in the cabin and da, 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 da. so septimus and his men get on the ship and primus actually like sneaks out and sends septimus off on this wild goose chase on a boat <laughs> but um primus does die the same way in the book with the witch slicing his throat but because he was not killed by his brother septimus is bound by like law or like an oath to avenge his killer which makes him essentially like make a detour in his journey for the stone so now he has to find the witch whereas in the movie it's kind of like oh they all converge at the same place in the book he has to go seek her out because it's his duty to kill her oh that's cool yeah it sounds like the movie could have been three and a half hours long um, when Neil Gaiman did the audiobook of Stardust, it was like ten and a half hours, and he was like, "Oh, damn, they got to cut some stuff for the movie." <laughs> well, it's it's very like, uh, yeah, I can tell my brother that he's a dumb dumb, but you can't exactly. Yeah. That's a very good way to put Man. it, actually. Mm. Um, and the Witch Queen kills Septimus not by drowning him in the air with a voodoo doll, but she turns into a snake and bites him. That's way lamer. Voodoo doll and uh, he dies pretty quickly. Plus 10 for the voodoo doll. Plus 10 for the yeah, voodoo he, doll. Yeah, he finds her cottage and he's like, oh, this is where the witch lives. And he tries burning down the, the cottage and she escapes. And it's like, you tried to burn down my house. And she bites She him. just like Greek God turns into a snake and bites him. Yep. Evain is also kind of bound by like law, oath, duty, whatever you want to call it in the book. Since Tristan saved her life in the inn, she's basically indebted to him. And has to go wherever he goes, so she no longer requires the uh, the chain. Mm. She just kind of is forced to go along with him against her will. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't like that. the whole. I mean, the chain is still the chain kind of wasn't great either, but yeah. So the Lilum, which is what they call the witches. So the witches actually don't have a name in the book. They're just called the Lilum, and she's no. the witch. Is queen. that like their covenant? I think so. Yo, um, I straight thought this was Hocus Pocus when I was watching it. <laughs> They're always in threes. Yeah. Uh, but when the Witch Queen meets Ditchwater Sal. Uh, <laughs> ditch, funny name. Ditchwater Sal. Ditchwater Sal. You've been watching the movie. Dish. Ditch. 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 Ditchwater. Ditchwater. Ditchwater Sal. Such a funny name. In the movie, she's like, I thought you were dead. And then she like shows her eyes and is like, I'm still here. You know, like when she's all I'm creepy. Um, in the book, they explained that um, they say, quote, they have said that the Lilum were dead before now, but they've always lied. The squirrel has not yet found the acorn that will grow into the oak that will be cut to form the cradle of the babe who will grow to slay me. So there's a bunch of weird curses like that where mm-hmm. it's like this person who is cursed has to do this one thing for this one thing to happen. So this thing can happen. So then the witch can die. Mm. Or so then the curse can get broken. And so like Tristan's mom in the movie, she's just like, oh, I can only be free when she dies. But in the book, the condition is until the moon loses her daughter, if it occurred in a week where two Mondays come together. What? I don't know, man. Uh, I also want to clarify in our summary, when I mentioned the slaver, that's Ditchwater Sal. And it should also be noted that at the end of the movie, Ditchwater Sal gets her head blown up and she's decapitated yeah. and then she also gets thrown and nuked and there's just like a shadow left on the ground of yeah her body. she got she got the i remember thinking when that happened i was like damn hiroshima she got hiroshima <laughs> shadows. i wasn't just gonna say it but all right <laughs> yeah all right now robert de niro is a highlight 
in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in the book, he is not Captain Shakespeare, but he is Captain Johannes Alberic. And he doesn't pretend to be tough or take them hostage. It's a much smaller crew. And Alberic actually says, like, the reason he found them on the cloud is because he's part of a fellowship that is interested in his safe return to Wall. And he was given a heads up by a hairy little man My that, uncle. like, he might be there. And that whole section on the ship is only five pages in the book. Oh. So he doesn't dress in drag or anything? No. Is mm. it teach? Does he still teach uh, Tristan how to sword fight? Nope. That should also be noted. I don't think, because Miles was still really high in the Stardust, I don't know if you mentioned that, yeah, Robert De Niro is in it and he wears like dresses and he does like a little dance thing. Okay, well, you were the one who mentioned that they were on the ship, so I, it was kind of on you for... I said they were on the cloud about to get on the ship. Oh. It, Sorry, I, I was, I was on you, Stardust. You were, you, you were, I know, you weren't yeah. really here. You were someone else, yeah. Um, And now the for the biggest difference of the book is the ending is completely different. Really? There is no final battle that takes place between the witches Septimus and Tristan. Basically, Tristan has made up his mind to stay with Evane, and they're at the marketplace by Wall when Una and Tristan meet for the first time. And Una finds Tristan. And she's like, "Oh my God! There's the stone around Evane's neck." And she gives it to Tristan's like, "Now you're king. Go be king." And he's like, "I'm. I don't want to." And she's like, "I'm your mother. Do what I say." And he's like, "No." Based. And she's like. Really? I ask you one thing? It's your duty, and you d- if you don't like it, you can just stop. And he was like, okay. Oh, not based. And then the witch is in the marketplace, and she sees the star, and she goes up to her and is like, you know, I was going to kill you, but something's wrong. I can't do it anymore. I can't I can't see your heart. And it's because Yvain gave her heart to Tristan. Aww. And so there's nothing the witch can do. So Yvain, like gives her a kiss on the cheek and is like, goodbye. All right. And, uh, that's the end Minus of two. that. And then for the epilogue, Tristan and Evane take their sweet ass time getting to Stormhold. They take eight years because they're like, we want to travel and do stuff before I'm king and queen. They eventually get there. They ruled. They did well. But then he dies and it ends with Evane alone longing for him. So they don't end up together like stars in the sky. She's just as sad because she doesn't die. Damn. So what do you guys think? Minus two. Minus, minus two. And if you guys have been keeping track of the points, uh, just like my side comments, the points don't matter. Welcome to whose line is it? Anyway? <laughs> I was going to say. I would probably say that ending, in the, the book ending, weird. If I was the witch, I'd hold a grudge. I'd, I'd kill him just for the sake of killing him. I mean, you've, she's done all this other stuff. It seems like the witches in this have like oddly high morals at some points. I definitely think the movie ending is better. Well, it's it's more of a traditional ending in the sense that yeah, we get our climax and our final battle, and like you know that flow of storytelling is much more what we're used to. I think that works well. I think like yeah, the adaptations of what they did with like the final battle stuff was very fun, very cool. I the the fight scene between Septimus and Tristan is like one of my favorite duels of all time. I think the additions they made and the things they cut were really well done. Oh yeah. I think they did a very good job at balancing that and not making this a three hour movie. Whoever was like, hey, let's add a voodoo doll, bless your heart. That would be Because I I, I always think about adapting. That's one of my silly little things. And I'm like, yeah, it's so hard to know like, okay, what do you expand? What do you retract? And I think yeah, expanding the ship thing was very good. It was very fun. And Robert De Niro's character is very fun. Yeah, I was going to say there's like at times where it kind of feels like they're doing the like, oh, it's funny because it's a effeminate man bit. But I think they balance it pretty well to make it feel I, not like that. Dude, 
I was so scared because up until then, everyone they had interacted with had died. <laughs> and so, I guess, yeah, like the innkeeper. Yeah, and so I was like, oh, if you're going to kill Robert De Niro's character, I was so scared because I liked him. Mm. And then they didn't kill him. Yeah, so. And I think, his crew is like, sorry, I have to cut you off. No, no, I'm no. Still going to keep going about That's Robert what I was going to say. His crew's like, oh, we we been new. We been no. We knew you were a bit of a whoopsie, is what they say. <laughs> <Whoopsie>. Actually, <laughs> and also um, his his first mate is the filmmaker Dexter Fletcher. Who so him and Matthew Vaughn and oh goodness, I'm forgetting his name. The guy who plays Primus. They all were together for like Guy Ritchie stuff with Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrel. If that rings any bells Ritchie's for you, a British. he also directed Rocket Man, the Elton John movie. Oh, okay, Rocket Man recently, good. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Cool. Well, so Matthew Vaughn read this book and he loved it. And he decided he wanted to make something that was like Princess Bride meets Midnight Run. He had previously done a movie called Layer Cake in 2004 um, with Daniel Craig, which was pretty well received. So Vaughn met with Neil Gaiman to discuss how to make this a movie. And because Vaughn was more interested in the kind of action adventure side of it than the romance side, Gaiman suggested working with Jane Goldman. Um, and the two hit it off and have worked on several projects together. So they've written the X-Men prequels and the Kingsman movies together. So Paramount Pictures was the distributor, but Miramax originally had the rights, but they expired. And after the rights expired with Miramax, Gaiman was pretty protective of the film um, because obviously he loved the story. And he gave it to Matthew Vaughn for free because he thought after meeting with Vaughn that he was really someone who would stick to his word and do good by the book. Mm, that's nice. Um, as for the drafts, there isn't a whole lot of information, but uh, yeah, there's some characters in the book that never made it into the film like I mentioned, but a character that wasn't in the book but appears in the film is Ricky Gervais's character of Ferdy. That was not in the uh, book at all, and the character was created because Vaughn wanted to give De Niro, after he was signed on, he wanted to give him a, a scene to be kind of like the hard-selling, no-bullshit De Niro so he, he oh. wrote that in specifically does, does that for him. Yeah. Oh. Also, just a side comment. I made this when we were watching the movie, but De Niro. It feels like he's doing a like a Daniel Day Lewis from Gangs of New York bit, or I oh, I should have come prepped with an example, or he's just like, you're gonna come in here. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> I give up. Abort. Abort. Just the way he talked. Ow. Oh, you you know you you know you know. Oh, I love the, okay, and with plus tax, that brings it out to 200. 200. Yeah, and he's like, okay. <laughs> so on to casting. Charlie Cox was Matthew Vaughn's pick super early on for Tristan. And because Michelle Pfeiffer, Robert De Niro, and Claire Danes had all signed on, the studio was much more okay with ba- basically casting an unknown since uh, he had not really done a lot at this point. Uh, there are a series of behind the scenes YouTube videos that I used a lot for reference that I will be linking all in the show notes. Um, one of them is called Stardust, What Do Stars Do? They Shine, the casting process. And Matthew Vaughn talks about his decision to pick Charlie Cox saying, quote, sometimes in movies, it's great to have an unknown because they become so, they so become that character. And also we want that sense of wonder of when he's going on an adventure he comes across Michelle Pfeiffer, comes across De Niro, comes across Ricky Gervais, all these mm. names that we know. We really believe it's a boy on a journey. And if it was Brad Pitt going on a journey, it'd be more like these guys are lucky to meet Brad, not the other way around. I like that twist. Because obviously it's like, good. yeah, if you cast an unknown, they're going to become the character better than someone who you know. Which we kind of talk about like sometimes when actors get so big, you only see yeah. them. You don't I was going to say, yeah. Well, because I watched an episode of The Mandalorian 
and it's just like Jack Black is in it. Yeah, um, it's just Jack Black. It's and then it has the uh, guy Doc Brown, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. And I was just like, this is just Jack Black and Christopher Lloyd. I don't know why they're here. Yeah. But I, I like that twist of it being like, okay, an unknown, but then the other actors. And so having the other well-known actors like heightens kind of their credibility within the world. Yeah. So it feels like you're like, oh, they're meeting like these titans of, you know, people. That's pretty cool. Vaughn also talks about how casting De Niro was a dream come true. And it, it also fit the role super well since he wanted someone that universally we go, oh, he's a tough guy. Don't fuck with him. Hmm which obviously De Niro brings with the characters he's known for in the past. Apparently, De Niro's main reason for signing onto this movie was because he was initially the first pick for Captain Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean, but he turned it down thinking it would flop, and then he regretted the decision ever since, and so he didn't want to make that same mistake again, so he been, signed on. That would have been really interesting. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer was another dream pick for Vaughn, and the idea was just to pick a woman who was so beautiful which she is, um, and then have her fall apart on camera and make it more interesting. Um, this is, again, someone just universally we go like, oh, she's stunning to have you know her boobs sag and her hair fall out and wrinkles and dark spots appear on her. She's no cow woman. Very fun. So in the book, Michelle Pfeiffer's character as the witch doesn't have a name like I mentioned. They're just called the Lilum. So in this film, they do have names and it's Lamia, Mormo, and Empusa. And they're all references to Greek mythology. So Lamia and Mormo were demons who ate children, and Impusa was sent by Hecate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to eat travelers. So that's why I, I can see from. the spelling. Um, I know which one you're talking about. But yeah. Yeah. any fans of uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, you can uh, you can roast this later. Please since do. You know, since you know everything about Greek mythology mm-hmm. and won't shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Vaughn also offered Mark Strong the part of Septimus without any audition because he was such a huge fan and considers him one of the top three actors of the generation. Sarah Michelle Gellar turned on Yvain to be with her husband, Freddie Prince Jr., um, because he was filming in the U.S. and I guess they had kind of like an agreement and a promise not to accept jobs that conflicted and kept them apart like that. Hmm, okay. Um, and if you don't know those names, that's, that's Daphne and Fred from the live action Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. Oh, look there at that. She's also Buffy Vampire yeah. Slayer. No, no, I like hers more. Mm, I like okay. Mariah's example because I understand that one. All right, well, mine's for the older generation, I guess. Um, and Hathaway, Scarlett Johansson, and Jessica Alba all turned down the role of Evane as well. Yeah. Mariah, are you going to talk about Mark Strong more? Uh, I will in a bit. Okay. Why? I just want to test Miles. Who's Mark Strong? He was also in Kingsman movies. He plays Merlin. Country the techie roads. guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Take me home. He's the bald. guy who steps on the line and blows up. Yeah, he's bald. Wait, he's in this movie. He has hair. He's in Septimus. This movie. He's the, the one who drowns. Really? Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's got a wig on. Huh. Wow. Don't, quick note. Don't let anyone tell you that putting glasses on doesn't turn you into a different person. Because apparently, you can just put a wig on, and I won't fucking know. Hair is a, hair is a big change, though. Yeah. It's much different than glasses. Yeah. Like so a, I had no like a beard. Idea. Whenever he, oh no. But does he mind. have hair or is he wearing a wig? Uh, I believe he's I wearing believe he's, a wig. He's bald. Yeah. Well, I don't know when he went bald. I'm same. I asked the same question. I was like, I don't know when he went bald. I did not keep a, 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 I a detailed charter. I want the ledger. Well, if he's anything like me, he he started going bald when he was 18. So I guess yeah, it can happen pretty early, huh? That shit sucks. You nah. rock the bald look, though. Thank It'd you. be you like get, Vin Diesel. See, it. Vin Diesel, what are your thoughts on it? 
am Groot. I am Groot. Superman. Wait, We've had so many guests in the I know. studio. Wait, Vin Diesel was Groot. the Iron Giant? Yeah. Huh. And Groot. Oh, I knew he was Groot. Yeah. Okay. Superman. Moving forward into production. Um, the main thing that kind of impressed me about this was just the amount of coordination, which I guess it really shouldn't because all movies need a lot of coordination. But um, because there are so many big names in the film, it was really hard to schedule everybody. So De Niro trained uh, for the, like the fencing kind of montage. Uh, he did that in New York independently while Charlie Cox trained on set in England. And then a couple of days before his filming, so De Niro shot for like two weeks, um, they rehearsed the fight and Charlie Cox said it was like a great way to get to know him before they actually like. Now that I think about it, I've never seen De Niro in like fight scenes. Like really. Yeah, actually. He's, he has like some gunplay stuff here and there, but never like fighting. I guess raging. Bull, I mean, yeah. But, but like. But like different. dueling. Sorry, I was thinking like strictly yeah, like yeah, dueling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the scene at the end before Primus is killed, Vaughn had to use a lot of stand-ins and close-ups because it was almost impossible to film more than one of the cast at a time due to scheduling as well. So in that whole scene and interaction, it's mostly just stand-ins with one of the actors at a time. Mm-hmm. Another kind of small thing is that Ricky Gervais, because he's a comedian, he ad-libbed a lot in the scenes that he was in, which inspired De Niro to ad-lib. And Matthew Vaughn had to be like, hey guys, there's a script. Damn. If you go too far off, I can't really use it. And and there's again a bunch of behind-the-scenes video. Like, so much footage of them actually rolling the camera, and you just basically see the movie from further out with all the camera lighting. Um, and in between takes, Vaughn goes up and is, like, kind of correcting them, and, and Gervais goes, oh, do the script? And Vaughn says, yeah, well, some of it in there, please. <laughs> uh, another thing is that, in general, Vaughn wanted a sense of kind of normalcy and realism to the magic, so it wasn't too distracting. So he based everything off of things that people would recognize and then just dressed it up to fit the world. So for example, the carriage that Septimus has is designed to be like a Hummer. Mm, yeah, the back slopes down. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh. Speaking of Septimus, Mark Strong, who would later go on to work with Matthew Vaughn again for the Kingsman movies, like you mentioned, he said, quote, what I think I've enjoyed most about Matthew is I think his taste is incredibly accurate. He won't look at the monitor and let something pass unless he thinks it's right. And as an actor, that's essentially what you want from a director. You want them to be your mate behind the camera. So I think that's a very good just technique yeah. in general. For locations, they kind of filmed all over England, Scotland, and Wales. The town of Wall is a kind of a collection of British towns that they just kind of combined together to make the scenes. For the journey into Ferry and Stormhold, they used a lot of countryside that was pretty remote. And because of its remoteness, there's a lot of not ideal weather. They had at times like 40 mile an hour winds. They had to, like, nail down the crane that they were using. Where, where did you say it was? England. Yeah, that explains it. Yeah. Um, England. They had rain delays, all that fun stuff. Oh, sorry. What's that in the sky? Oh, it's the sun? I've never seen it before. I love you English people. Please, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> you can make fun of America all you want. I don't care. They, uh, so the, in addition to filming in the UK, they did film in Iceland for Septimus's journey when he's misled to the edge of the ocean and he does the bit with the runes tossing it in the air with the ice and all that stuff. And, really cool bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in an interview, Mark Strong commented at one point, it was just like an ultra wide shot kind of sweeping with a helicopter. And he was just truly alone on this stunning beach in Iceland. There was no camera gear. There were no like crew or anyone. It was just him hmm. just in the beautiful landscape of Iceland. I'm like, that's just, ah, that's so cool. Imagine you're, you're like, you're him. 
I would eat that up. And they're like, okay, we're gonna leave. We're gonna put you right here. Uh, in a little bit, you're gonna see a helicopter, and then in a little bit longer, we'll come back. And you're just like, all right, well, I guess I'll just. Yeah, amazing. Dream, and dream never, come true. They never come back. <laughs> just some guy in costume stranded somewhere. Poor Septimus. Vaughn said that he would have actually preferred to shoot the whole thing in Iceland, but the main drawback is that you you can't bring horses and livestock into the country, like of any kind. And so they were like, well, that's kind of non-negotiable. Do like, they not have horses there? Well, I'm sure they do, but the process to like get them in is like extremely difficult. Weird Iceland law. Mm-hmm. It's it, yeah, I don't because I know generally when places have that, it's for like invasive species and stuff, right? But I'm like, I can't horses. I mean, my you, twin just got their cat moved to Australia from Alaska, and yeah, that so alone for a cat, maybe, yeah, maybe it's more like that diseases. process, yeah, like they carry like a disease or something. Yeah. I don't know. Um, and, but because they couldn't film in Iceland, they could try to recreate Iceland, and so they used the Isle of Skye in northwest Scotland, um, to kind of connect it to that shot of mm. them on the beach because the Isle of Skye looks very different from the rest of Scotland and more like Iceland. They cleverly shot a small amount in Iceland and then used the Isle of Skye, connected it, um, and did some like plates that they would kind of cut over each other and all that kind of stuff. Classic. I feel like there was a couple of moments where they put some mountains in the background. That Do you know? Well, we can talk about VFX right now. You sure? Okay. Yeah. Let's do it VFX time. Yes. Woo! So there's a lot of VFX in this film, if you yes. couldn't tell. And Vaughn was very new to VFX and needed a lot of help and guidance. It kind of shows. <laughs> Peter Chiang was the visual effects supervisor. And basically, Vaughn wanted to use as little as possible, saying if it couldn't mm. be done in camera or done cheaply, then they could do CGI. Obviously, there's like an inn that magically appears, this dead royalty floating around the ship in the sky. So there's like quite a bit. But they basically tried to do it as simply as possible. Okay. In general, the VFX would, uh, that unit would go off with a helicopter shoot plates that the main unit didn't need to be there for, like establishing shots that combined with the green screen that the actors were in front of for like transitions and establishing shots. For the shot of the inn being created in front of mm-hmm. um, the witch and the two goat men. I believe it's just like a wide shot. And they're standing there and you see it just kind of like inflating. Yeah. So they have the actors looking at a blue screen. And then they put the plate in of like the country road. And then there's a matte painting in the background. And then the CG in being created. And originally, Vaughn wanted to burn a house and then play the footage in reverse to like show it being built. Okay. So what they did is they made a foam, a foam core house, like kind of right. melted it down, ran it backwards, and they based the animation off of that. Oh, okay. that's a good yeah. way to do that. Mm-hmm. It's always good to give your animators reference. Yeah. For the ship, the Caspertine. Uh, they had this big ship deck that was too big for the stage. Right. So the bow of it is actually just CG. The fr- very front of it doesn't exist. Mm. But um, it was also really tall, uh, like too tall where you could see the ceiling of the stage. Ooh. So they had like trapping, tracking markers and LED wall, like LED lights on the wall so they could recreate the, like the correct movement with the camera. And then they had basically green screen ceiling. So like it was so green in that stage. Mm. And then they would just move the top one on the ceiling around wherever they needed to get the shot. But the actors always look nice and green. Yeah. I was going to say that that light casting from the green screen must have been hell. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they should have just shot where the Goonies shot. Yeah. Sounds day 16. Yeah. In LA. 
so close to where they were in England. Well, okay, it's a soundstage. Just fly over there, dummies. Again, in one of the behind the scenes videos, they do like a whole thing about the VFX, and they do they show all the passes that they do for like different shots. Oh, right, so it's really cool. Um, I actually would like to see that. Yeah, I will. Yeah. Again, be posting that as a like a link down show below. It to me. Um, for the mountains when the ship is like flying over them, there's basically like the basic CG pass, and then they do a depth pass. Then they mm. add the CG mist, and then mm-hmm. there's the sky and background, yep. and then there's the CG clouds, mm-hmm. and then there's rays, and mm-hmm. then there's lens flare. Yeah. So there's seven different kind of passes that they do to just do the background of that. And they did a lot of what they call CG takeover, which I'm sure you're aware of, which is basically when they start with what the camera shot on the set, and they pull back, and they blend it with the CG and pull out. And right. eventually, it's all CG. In the uh-huh. Think uh, think of... Uh... A shot that pulls out from a person up to the planet. Yep. That would be an example. Yeah, yep. yeah, whenever it's like extreme, just like pull out or something. Yeah, and so like uh in the kind of the very beginning when we see the king dying oh. and it and it zooms through a telescope? Yeah, like or no, uh no, that's a different shot. The, the camera is like flying over all the mountain ranges and then it mm. kind of goes in from the top of the ceiling down into the scene. I want to say they do it a couple times like that. Y- yeah, yeah, but that's just like one of the examples. Right, right, right. So basically what they did was to recreate Scotland and Ireland, but to make it feel like it's fairy. They went they, to hell. They got maps of Scotland and Iceland from a company that shows like the height data, like all of the geographical mm, topography. Like, yeah. And then they recreated that so it blended in with where the camera actually right, ended up. Okay. Um, so they did it for those kind of things. I they, really wanted to jump in and say topography because I like that word. But I said it first. It's fun, you know. Um, they did have to add in set extensions for the witch's lair in CG, which was just like the ceiling, basically. That makes sense. And they did add some like smaller details that weren't in there. Originally, the ghosts of the dead brothers were initially conceptualized to be much more effects heavy. The idea was to show that, like, if the brother died by burns, like, in one shot, he'd be on fire, and, like, the next he'd be fine, but he'd have the burns, and there was just, like, a lot going on. It was, like, pretty complex, but then when they did the makeup, they just kind of, like, oh, that's enough, and we can let, like, kind of the comedy aspect really Mm -hmm. take the performance. Mm. So they basically just did, like, a simple transparent filter on them, and that was it. Right. Like, green screen, then? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And they did do some miniatures. Miniatures. We love miniatures. miniatures. I got a miniature right in front of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Miniature, the extra uh. And so for the scene where we first see Evane fall into the crater, that goes over a miniature forest. Wow. Mm, yeah. Right. Now, while there is quite a lot of VFX, they built a lot of sets. We have the crater. We have the inn that the witch magics. We've got the captain's quarter on the ship, the king's bedroom, the witch's lair, which was massive. Yeah, that um, one was really big, where they do the final battle and stuff. Yeah, so Gavin Bouquet is the production designer. Big round of applause for him. And he had worked on the Star Wars prequels. So they were like, oh, oh yeah, he got this. Shout out. Shout out Star Wars prequels. Mm-hmm. Miles is holding a Star Wars miniature right now. Yeah. And um, Bouquet managed to create the Witch's Lair in about 12 weeks, which was a huge push because they wanted Charlie Cox and Mark Strong to be able to like be on the set and rehearse the duel between them like on the actual location. It's it's better if they're on location, like doing it for real. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the Witch's Lair is based off of the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles, which was kind mm. of this last minute idea from Vaughn. And basically, they just switched the colors. So in the Palace of Versailles, where everything was white, they made it black. And where everything was gold, they made it silver. Okay. Um, For the ship of the Casper Tyne, the deck itself, again, was huge. Neil Gaiman is quoted about saying about the pirate ship, quote, 
the thing that I, as either an author or as a scriptwriter, always feel when I visit a set is guilt. Because what happens is, it was something I made up. It was the work of a paragraph to create a flying pirate ship. If I'd thought of something different at the moment when I needed them to get out of trouble, it could have been a submarine, it could have been anything. It was just a flying pirate ship because I thought, wouldn't that be fun? Now it's eight years later and I'm walking on a Studio H. 30 or 40 craftsmen have been toiling for eight weeks at a cost of something significantly upwards of $1 million to build a full-size in-studio a flying pirate ship. And I feel elated. I felt odd. But chiefly, I just felt guilty. I wanted to walk around and apologize to each of them because I never meant for anybody to have to actually do any of the work. It was just something fun I made up. Hmm. That's pretty good. I'm like, that That is is a very interesting reaction to like seeing your vision for a novel come to life like that mm-hmm. i'd imagine you know the guy who wrote the uh, train spotting book if you were to walk on stage and see him swimming out of a toilet being like <laughs> i'm sorry man yep one more thing just about like the fight scene which again is like one of my favorite fight scenes of a movie there wasn't a whole lot on it unfortunately just that like obviously septimus is on wires um and so they had to like you know digitally remove all that mm-hmm. he did say that it was extremely difficult to do that because his head is down or his head is back and he can't see where he's going yeah to, to explain i don't know how well he did this in summary what happens is septimus ends up dying and then they pull out a voodoo doll and so the witch is using the voodoo doll to make him fight uh so he's like puppet Tristan. on a string so he's, basically. his like eyes are closed his joints are flopping around he goes and he's like and he fights a duel yeah yeah it's actually very cool yes. very cool um charlie cox also was injured when one of the large vases that smashes into him did not smash and it threw him across the room and knocked him unconscious we, we, we love uh having your brain hit your we love workplace your inside accidents. of your brain or your inside of your skull osha rules are written in blood okay obey them uh and just a, a quote from matthew vaughn that I, I felt like it was kind of hard to put it anywhere so i'm just you know what fuck it i'll just put, put it, it here. here um he just said Quote, it's a proper feel-good movie without being a romantic comedy. You come out and go, that was a fun two hours to spend. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to change the world, but it's entertaining. It was entertaining. I agree. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's where um, that comes in a lot with my reading when we get there, where I'm like, I, I find myself being picky. And then I'm like, okay, wait, but that's not what this is. This isn't trying to be serious or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, it's supposed to be like fun family time. Like, I'm not here to, well, this scene, the emotional of a punch and, you know, whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, when they were getting ready to release this, the movie did extremely well with test audiences and the audience kind of like universally agreed like this isn't a fairy tale. It's like an adventure story with some fantasy elements. It was reaching a much broader audience than they expected. So when Paramount saw this, they pushed back its initial March release to July. And so it was released in July of 2007. It did not do super well at the box office, though, despite the good test audiences. So it had a rough budget of 70 to 80 million dollars and it grossed 9 million its opening weekend mm. coming in fourth in the US and second in the UK but it did manage to make its money back and ended up grossing 137 million dollars worldwide. Okay. And Vaughn actually had an idea for a sequel in which the necklace goes over the wall and bounces off of Big Ben and it's set like in the 1960s. <laughs> okay. Um but because the first one did not make enough money, uh they shut the down. I can already down. tell you man that <laughs> also I like to point out that necklace is clearly magical and thus would not work in England. Correct. Thank you. Uh, the necklace goes over the wall, bounces off a of big Ben, lands straight down middle in the queen's lap, and the corgi eats the necklace and becomes a beautiful woman. The queen's dead, dude. 
What? Long live the queen. Uh, and uh, and just to kind of round out everything on this movie, just some extra fun trivia that didn't really fit anywhere else in. First off, Terry Gilliam was Neil Gaiman's first pick for director, oh. but he had just done the movie The Brothers Grimm, and he wanted a break from fairy tales. Oh, that's so. him? Oh. Mm-hmm. That movie scared me. There's a bit in that movie where a horse eats a little boy and its stomach gets all big and it like my mom has seen this movie, she you know what I'm talking about. That it scared me. I remember I walked in, that scene happened, I was like, I'm out. Uh the glass knife that Lamia uses that to to try to kill Evane hmm. was originally designed by Matthew Vaughn for Magneto in X Men The Last Stand in two thousand six, but it was never used, so he used that same design for this one. A um, glass knife for Magneto? Not metal? Guess I think not. it's to kill him. It's hmm. to kill Magneto. Probably. Okay, that would make more, make more sense. sense. Also, wasn't it? I thought it was obsidian. Obsidian. It looks like obsidian, yeah. No. But I don't well, know. Uh, IMDb obsidian says glass, glass so. is a thing. Yeah. So, after they say they love each other, and Evane and Tristan wake up in the same bed, Tristan was originally bare chested in the scene, but it was considered quote too suggestive. It's already suggestive. So, we know what happened. So the shirt that he's wearing is digitally imposed on him. Really? Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't notice at all. Just Hold two buddies fuck. having a sleepover. Yeah. Release prints were delivered to theaters with the fake titles Rusty and Bright, which is interesting to me because I don't think this movie made a lot of waves, so I don't know why they would do that. Huh. Captain Shakespeare's ship is called the Casper Tyne, and it's named after Matthew Vaughn's children, Casper and Clementine. God, I'm looking at pictures. That shit is CG. Let me see. You can see around his neckline, it's like a little blurry. Oh, yeah. And it like just kind of like fades into his skin. Oh. I mean, it passes my check. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm goo-goo. Huh. Neat. All right. Septimus's musical theme is written in seven-eighths time. Oh. Funny. Which okay. obviously very fitting for his ah, name. yes. Mm. I see. Yes. Um, he also, if you noticed, Septimus travels in groups of seven. It's him and six men. And Primus travels alone to right. their names. Because they're all numbers. Mm-hmm. And the last thing is that all of the brothers have the Roman numerals of their birth order incorporated in their clothing. Mm. So on Septimus's, it's a little bit more obvious. So he's the number seven on his buttons. Mm. Um, but like that's the amount of detail that they put into it, which I just think is phenomenal. Right. Wait, wait you're telling me this motherfucker is, is uh, Daredevil? I was gonna oh, yeah, bring, I was gonna to bring that, that up earlier, but you went past it. So I was like, ah, and then I wasn't sure if Miles would know. So. Yeah, one of the letterbox reviews I saw, I saw said something like, "It's weird to see Charlie Cox make eye contact with people." <laughs> anyway, that is all I have for you on Stardust. I've read a book, I watched a movie, I watched some more little behind the scenes videos, and that is the information that I have for you. And now I will turn it over to you guys. What are your thoughts? What did you like? What did you, you not like? What did you think in general? I'll go first. Uh, I don't know if I have a whole lot to say because it is just sort of like a fun action film. So, like, I'm not going to sit here and hammer down critique it because, like, it, you know, it's not trying to be crazy or say anything. It's just supposed to be fun, happy-go-lucky, good time. Yeah, I think some some of the VFX are kind of like, ooh. There's one bit where they're standing in the clouds and they're, yeah. like, green screen. And that one was egregious yeah. that one looked pretty rough I'll, t- I'll talk about some of the visual effects and like mm-hmm. why it does or does not work okay um but it's it's yeah it's just kind of a fun kooky time again like some things are like ah oh, the acting there i don't really like it. like it's very dramatic and just kind of like like there's there's a bit towards the end you know when she's like what do stars do 
they shine. Yeah. And she starts shining. And then the witch coming down the stairs to the stupid thing where she looks at him and then she tilts her head to the left like, huh? Like, what's going on? Huh? And it's like, ah. Like, I just wanted to be like, they shine. <laughs> like, no moment to, like, think. But instead they do, like, the curious dog bit where they're like, hmm? Huh? What's going on? So there's, like, kind of some of those, like, drama bits where I'm like, ah, I don't know how I feel about it. But uh, it's quirky, fun. There's a couple of comedy bits that I thought landed pretty well. I can't think of them right now, unfortunately. The old man doing the backflip and then hitting them in the chest. Oh, oh, you're right. You, you've you led me down another path. Yeah, another thing was, that one confused me. Because <laughs> I was like, in the beginning of the movie, he doesn't care and just kind of like lets the guy pass. And he's like, no, come back. And the second time, he just like breaks out these kung fu moves and he's flying around on wires. And then the third time when he runs through the wall, he's like, oh, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> you suck at this job, man. I don't understand why you're doing this. Um, and then another thing that kind of bugged me was at the end, the witch is about to kill them. And then she's like, no, you killed my sisters. I got like nothing left to live for. Just like get out of here. And then they go. And then she's like, psych, I got you. <laughs> and I was like, why? Be- well, she explains that the heart of the oh, star right. is better in that condition than if she had killed her right in that moment. Yeah, because but of, they were hopeful. I, I think because because so. the second because if the concept was that her heart was broken before because she thought was his nuts left her. Yeah, when she saw him come in to save her, her heart would have been that back. would have been prime spot right she there. She would have been she would have been there. But like it just I I know the main intention for that probably was just to sort of increase the suspense and just to have that like gotcha moment. I but. I hate when they do that in movies where it's like, I'm going to get you a nod. Psych. And it's like, maybe it was a nod to the the book's version. Yeah, it's very similar being like, oh, your heart, you know. But that was one thing where I was like, ah, come on. Yeah, I I wasn't a huge fan of that either. Uh, I think the goat bit is prime cinema. One of the (laughs) best things that's ever happened. The guy who plays the Billy Goat. Mark Williams, who he's Mr. Weasley in the Harry Potter movies. Yeah, he's his goat impression is mm-hmm. insane he's a goat when he, turned when he into jumps a man. up on the counter and like lifts the the handle up with his lip, his lip like so funny yeah. uh-huh amazing and, and then yeah there's a shot where a unicorn runs in and he goes to headbutt <laughs> the unicorn as a human being and then once they collide you get this shot of just like a stuffy goat flying <laughs> lifeless is so goat funny body it's flying. so funny but yeah i think it's just kind of like a solid movie there isn't much to say on my end miles what about you? well uh i went into this movie thinking it was gonna be a space movie i thought it was gonna have spaceships and and whatnot in oh, it because i, I thought it was a space ship. and ship movie yeah so stefan told me it was a it was a space and and ship movie i said it has space and ships yeah which i took as spaceships I because knew. what sane human being wouldn't connect those two things there wasn't even all that much space in it yeah there's a falling no. star but it doesn't it, nothing happens in space anyway they become stars at the end also space. told that the vfx would be something to look out for mm-hmm. and my introduction to this was a two-headed elephant that looked atrocious and some eyeballs that looked mediocre. So I went in kind of being like, I don't like this movie. But as it continued, I, I liked it more and more. And then Robert De Niro came on and I went, holy shit. 
I can't wait for my friends to be proud of me because they're gonna. I'm gonna tell them that I saw Robert De Niro in this movie, and they're gonna go, "Oh my God, Miles, he did it! He finally mm-hmm. remembered his name and knows what he looks like." But uh, some of the visual effects do have a couple shortcomings, and I know in the Transformer movies, I talked about lighting and we talked about animation, but there's actually more that goes into making shots look realistic, which these shots particularly sometimes did not do so great. And as you know, our human eyes are very good at picking out things that don't look right. Mm. Uh, and so really that's all this this comes down to ever is, is does it look right? So when you're making a VFX shot, if you're going to add green magic into it, mm. please make sure that it is not more saturated than anything else in the shot. Because there were a couple of shots where the green of the magic is really saturated, but nothing else is. So it feels like it's kind of sitting on top of the of the you know picture, really. Right. right. So saturation is a big thing. It's kind of be a weird cut, but the original Sonic the Hedgehog before they changed it in the live action one had the exact same problem where he was too saturated for the rest of the scene. Right. And that's kind of one of the things that threw everyone off about it. Mm-hmm. The elephant also has this problem, but that thing just looked bad in, mm-hmm. in every category. Yeah, it's always really important to when you're doing CG stuff for in, co- in uh, color and lighting. So like, yeah, if you have an object casting casting a shadow or has a really black space on it that you're adding into it, you need to make sure that the darkest dark of your object matches the darkest dark of something in the scene. Mm-hmm. Because if you have something that's darker than like anything else that's happening in the scene, it's just gonna look weird. Yeah. Another thing is that sometimes they did really well and sometimes they didn't mm. is imperfections. Um, mm. And in 3D visual effects, the imperfections mean like surface imperfections, like smudges, scratches, stuff like that. Mm. But it's important to note, everything you film, even on digital cameras, is going to have some amount of grain to it, just because of the way camera sensors work still. Right. Because like if you you know, try to film something in a dark room, you'll know all that, that grain that you get. Even bright shots still have a little bit of that grain. But... Most visual effects do not have that grain. At no point do they gain the qualities of that grain. So when you're adding them to your shot, you need to make sure that you replicate the imperfections of your shot into the visual effect itself. So you need to go through and do a pass just to Mm -hmm. kind of blend it a little bit more. Uh, And sometimes they did this really well. Sometimes with like the fire effects, it, it didn't do it. And that kind of helps... Yeah, make it feel separate. The the battle of VFX is making something that not only looks appropriate for the world, but also appropriate for the camera. Yeah, which is very difficult to sort and of do both that's of those things. Because you said that they had a pass just to add flares. Mm. Yeah, like lens flares. Lens flares. Yeah. So in in the visual effects world, if you're aiming to make something look realistic, you're going at it the wrong way. You mm. need to make things that look like they were filmed through a camera. Mm. So that means adding a little bit of grain, adding lens flares, adding a bit of blur because cameras, even in the sharpest version, aren't yeah. perfectly sharp. Which is especially important, especially if you're going at like a slow frame rate or a high frame rate for like right. slow motion or something. You need to make sure that the, the blur is correct. Which they... Was the... Him floating in the air, was that slowed down? I think... Okay, here's... Mariah, do you know anything about that? 
I actually my didn't find like a looking at it. My hypothesis, that. because of the lighting that was on him, I think they filmed that underwater. They did in a green 100%. screen, and then they just sort of composited him into the into the scene. Yeah, hundred percent. That's what they did. Yeah, so that's I'm pretty sure that's all they did. But it looks. You're really talking good. about whether or not they slowed it down. Yeah, I don't think they did. I don't think so. No, but yeah. that that was an amazing. That shot. was a very good shot. Yeah, that whole sequence mm-hmm. where he's mm-hmm. drowning in the air. I remember because I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. I've, I don't know how many times I've seen it. This is like a family favorite of, of the Depkin household. And I always thought that it was like so cool, but it also like terrified me in a weird way. Like I was like, I don't want that to happen yeah, to me. Yeah. I was going to say that can't. that does, I'm going to get kind of stupid artsy on you here, but like one of my favorite things I've noticed in like movies and stories, whatever, is this thing that I, I like to call the beauty of annihilation where it's like you have something that is like, awful but mm. it's being shown in such a beautiful way where you have that sort of conflicting emotion about it where you're like wow that's like awe-inspiringly beautiful but also terrifying at the same time like and, uh, uh i love that kind of thing well oh god i was watching something about like the art of car crashes in american cinema hmm. where it's like the car crashes in movies are meant to be kind of spectacular yeah despite the fact that they are Two motor Awful. vehicles slamming together. That's not good. Mm-hmm. But like there's an idealization. Yeah. But anyway, it's just that concept of having these these two things. I think this that particular moment really exemplifies that. All right. Back to the silly voices. <laughs> Yay. Well, yeah. So like I mentioned, I watched this movie a lot when I was a kid. Um, I read the book for the first time when I was doing research for this. Yeah, I do think that the movie is better than the book. Uh, again, even just to get that fight scene between Septimus and Tristan alone. Mm-hmm. I love it with my whole heart. I always thought it was like the coolest thing in the world when I was younger. And I still think it's really sick. Like how they did it, how they make him move and like look. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, it's just like uh, kind of like a comfort movie for me in a sense. It's just like it's nice. This was like the <laughs> this was like the first thing that I knew Robert De Niro from. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, he's no <laughs> he's known for not these kind of movies and so for me to associate robert de niro with this movie from a really young age i think is just very funny kind of in hindsight and um, i always thought him dancing around with the dress to the can can was just like peak comedy because you can see septimus like approach and you know like it's gonna happen and his coverage gonna be blown but um yeah it's got so many good moments i just love it so i don't know really what else there is to say yeah well, there's one thing you can say. Is it what I rate it? What would you rate it? Mm. I am going to give this movie seven heart-shaped mole makeup things Yeah. out of ten. Okay. Again, just for everything I just said. Miles, what about you? I am going to give it six men bowing before getting his head absolutely demolished. By an axe. By an axe. <laughs> Uh, out of 10. I like it. It's a good movie. It is exactly what it wanted to be, though, which is just a movie that you go, nice. And to me, uh, that's a six. Um, Yeah, I give it a seven. Ferrets out of 10. Yeah. Yeah, women getting eaten ferrets by ferrets. destroying a witch. <laughs> yeah. Free my man, ferrets and coyotes. Gang, gang. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a very fun. Just, yeah, it's action, right? It's not trying to do anything crazy, but I like a lot of the bits, and yeah, especially that fight scene honestly takes it over the top for me. The ending bit and some of the effects are, are really good. Yeah, the Robert De Niro. Something about the ship in the sky 
it, it very treasure planet vibes i'm all for that i think it's just kind of a good time yeah all right well that sounds great so miles tossing it over to you what's our next episode i'm glad you ask mariah our next episode is going to be a little different uh oh. we are going to have what? a guest on the show our first guest our first guest we've might... had many guests we had like five today oh, yes that's yeah. true we did have a lot. no but he is going to be taking my position uh of storyteller and he is going to be talking about the japanese movie your name and who is this mystery guest this guest he got in through nepotism uh, he is my brother. In the film industry? Yes, he is my brother, Wesley, who you might remember from the very beginning of this episode. He's the man that thought that all the dinosaurs were pooping together, which... Idiot. idiot. Well, tell him he's wrong. You fool. Mm-hmm. I can't believe Next you would time. think that that's the case. But anyway, he's going to be talking about uh, a movie called Your Name. Very good. When it came out, it was very well received in America. Mm-hmm. I remember that. So maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. But you're definitely going to hear about it. In the next one. Yes. So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in hearing us roast Wesley for his stupid Jurassic Park question, Uh uh, make sure you tune in for the next episode. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter at The Takes It Took. And if you want to send us any more questions, comments, suggestions, what have you, you can do that to our email, thetakesittook at gmail.com, which on like, what Miles thought it is real. We've received some messages before. Mm-hmm. We just had a lot to talk Send about messages this time. To us. So funny comments, questions. But I, I think that's it. That's all. All right. Stay safe. Have fun. Watch movies and uh, go look for some shooting stars. Oh, scared me there. I yeah, you scared me too. <laughs> what do you think I was gonna say? Bye. 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 Shooting. He's like, for a shooting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Nope.